Let us turn now uh, in our Bibles to 1 Kings chapter 8. We'll read the first 13 verses. 1 Kings 8, verses 1 through 13. Now Solomon assembled the elders of Israel and all the heads of the tribes, the chief fathers of the children of Israel, uh, to King Solomon in Jerusalem, that they might bring up the ark of the covenant of the Lord from the city of David, which is Zion. Therefore, all the men of Israel assembled with King Solomon at the feast in the month of uh, Ethanim, which is the seventh month. So all the elders of Israel came, and the priests took up the ark. Then they brought up the ark of the Lord, uh, the tabernacle of meeting, and all the holy furnishings that were in the tabernacle. The priests and the Levites brought them up. Also, King Solomon and all the congregation of Israel who were assembled with him were, at, were with him before the ark, sacrificing sheep and oxen that could not be counted or numbered for multitude. Then the priests brought the ark of the covenant of the Lord to its place into the inner sanctuary of the temple to the most holy place under the wings of the cherubim for the cherubim spread their two wings over the place of the ark, and the cherubim overshadowed the ark and its poles. The poles extended, extended so that the ends of the poles could be seen from the holy place in front of the inner sanctuary, but they could not be seen from outside. And they are there to this day. Nothing was in the ark except the two tables of stone which Moses put there at Horeb. When the Lord made a covenant with the children of Israel, when they came out of the land of Egypt. And it came to pass when the priests came out of the holy place, that the cloud filled the house of the Lord, so that the priests could not continue ministering because of the cloud. For the glory of the Lord filled the house of the Lord. Then Solomon spoke. The Lord said he would dwell in the dark cloud. I have surely built you an exalted house and a place for you to dwell in forever. May the Lord bless this scripture uh, to our good understanding as we deal with it this morning. We have the day when the temple began operating when it went into function, when it began to function, when it became operational. Before this time, there were religious ceremonies in the tabernacle, which was a mobile uh, unit, kind of like a, a family that goes camping, and they have, they have things from their house that they take with them. They have tents and that sort of thing. They have things from home, but uh, everything is, uh, everything is uh, transitory in a sense. Everything is mobile. And so the, the family goes and they vacation or they travel or they do something like that. And so this is the day that the Lord took Jerusalem and the people of God from being more transitory, from following this tent of meeting, as it was called, the tabernacle. And he took them from that to this place of stability, this place which was uh, built of... Uh, things that would not be moved. And, and uh, 
we notice here then that the, 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 the crescendo of this occasion was the filling of the temple, especially the Holy of Holies, but the, the whole temple was filled with a kind of glory, a kind of spiritual glory that um, was magnificent. And it was so powerful that the priests could not, they could no longer ab abide in the holy place, in the holy of holies, where they, had, where they had just set up the ark, but they were driven out by the, by the intense presence of the Lord. And so there are many things that we learn here in this passage, and it's well worth our study to ask ourselves questions about it. And, uh, and I've got an outline for you there um, uh, below at the bottom of the page underneath the, the worship. I've got an outline there for you to consider some of these things. Now, the first thing that we consider, oh, and, and before I begin that, this example that God gives us here is theologically very, very significant. Today, we have a number of debates going on, even in the Reformed Church, about the role of ceremonies, the role of church buildings. Just last week in our class on Samson, after, after the worship, we saw or we learned that uh, the book of Hebrews was written, the focus of Hebrews was on the fact that many of the Jews of that New Testament day were starting to go back, were leaving the faith, the Christian faith. They were starting to go back to the temple because they found the temple worship more significant because it was visible, visible, visible because it was tangible, because it was something they could see. And uh, it seems significant. And I know in our day, we often, as Reformed people, we're at a disadvantage because people, when they compare us to Rome and the great cathedrals that are built to which they can go and worship and the ceremonies of the, those cathedrals, coming to Mars Hill Academy, into the library, into, into uh, uh, the, this hall, it appears as almost nothing to them compared with the glories of Rome or the glories of a great Episcopal cathedral or even uh, something more significant, which is uh, found in United Methodism or some Presbyterianism or some great Baptist churches that, uh, that appear significant. And uh, many times today when, when you go and you tell them about your church or people will ask you about your church, they'll say, how are you doing? And when they ask that question, how are you doing? They're asking you for numbers. Uh, what, what are your numbers? Are, are, your numbers uh, are your numbers more significant or, or less? And this, this traces back to a very old uh, human trait. Uh, in in pre-Christian days, there was a philosopher named Pythagoras, from which we get the mathematical theory, uh, term, but the Pythagorean, the Pythagorean, the Pythagorean uh, theorem, theorem. Uh, and uh, uh, for Pythagoras, <clears throat> uh, numbers were reality. Uh, everything could be reduced to numbers, and uh, if you had the numbers, then you were significant. Well, you see, all of these kinds of questions bear, or this text today bears on that, because. In this passage, we see how everything was there in the temple. Everything was ready. 
in, in chapter 7, we can read all of the, all of the different um, things. Uh, uh, chapter 6 to 6 and 7, we, we read about all of the uh, developments that led to the temple being constructed. It took um, seven years for the temple to be built. And uh, all the, in these earlier chapters, they talk about all the workmanship that went into it. All the carvings, all the metal, the gold, the bronze. There's a tremendous amount of metal in the temple. The, the bronze um, things that just shone and sparkled like gold. And then the actual gold. A bronze is not a, pre, a super precious metal, but it's a very beautiful metal. And it's very substantial. It's very strong, much stronger than gold. And so... Um, so many of these things were, were constructed and chapter 6 and 7 talk about that. They talk about all the, uh, all the uh, ornamentation, all of the representations of the angels and the, the olive trees and the, the laurels that went into the, the construction of the temple. But that, all of that stuff stood there and none of that stuff qualified the temple as the temple. None of that stuff energized the Old Testament people until what we see here in this passage in verse, um, in verse 10 uh, took place. In verse 10 it says, And it came to pass when the priests came out of the holy place that the cloud filled the house of the Lord, also that the priests could not continue ministering because of the cloud, for the glory of the Lord filled the house of the Lord. This is sort of like uh, a decorated cake, you know, a birthday cake or something like that. Your, your wife or your mother can bake the cake. She can have all the ingredients there, but until she puts the frosting on the cake and the candles on top of the cake, you wouldn't call it a birthday cake, right? So it is with the temple. Well, all the stuff was there. But it wasn't really uh, the temple of the Lord until the Holy Spirit took up abode in the midst of the temple. And by taking up presence within the temple, this warranted God's presence with Israel. It animated them. It strengthened them. It gave them uh, a, a, an essential reason for being. And yet we kind of blaze over this and just don't realize the significance of it. And we don't realize the significance of it for the rest of our theology. So today, when we're uh, talking about things like uh, one of the debates that courses through the Reformed Church today is uh, having weekly communion, uh, committing ourselves to giving as prominent a place to the communion as we do to the preaching of the Word of God. And uh, I would argue that that works against such passages as this, where the... Um, the, uh, the Holy Spirit is focused on and magnified as uh, super significant for what goes on. So um, <clears throat> we see here that um, that uh, the, the, this, is the, this is the chapter in the passage where it speaks didactically and clearly about the filling of the temple by the Holy Spirit. Now, uh, this is called the... And, in Hebrew, this is called the Shekinah glory. And uh, glory is a word that has to do with something that's visible, something that's bright, something that's shiny, something that uh, catches our attention in terms of its brilliance. 
And so we take that physical thing, something bright, something visibly glorious, like a bright light, we take that and we can translate that to other events that we have that we attach that adjective glorious to. So you could say, uh, we, 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 got it. we were able to build the house this year and, and it, it is glorious to, to behold. Or uh, our sports team won the championship and, and what never was more glory, never did more glory come to uh, Lakota school districts or something like that than with, with, the, with that championship. All of, the, all of those metaphors or pictures trade on the, on the, the true uh, occasion of glory, which is the living God. God is ultimately, God is glorious, and nothing else in this world is really glorious in terms of the divine glory than the Lord. And on this occasion, you see, God came and he brought his Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit is usually invisible. It usually moves in our hearts. We don't all we we can't tell uh, who the Holy Spirit is operating on precisely because it's not visible. But on this occasion, it was visible. It was visible in the brightness, and it was visible in the sense that it was awesome. That it actually drove the priests out of the holy of holies and out into the outer recesses of the temple area that they had just built for the Lord. The day before, there were workmen in these places. They were setting up the final arrangements. Um, the priests brought in the Ark of the Covenant. And I remember the day when the Ark of the Covenant was carried in a, a haphazard way. And uh, uh, it, was, it was dropped. And the men that were, had dropped it were killed on the spot because God wanted them to realize that they were transporting the Ark of the Covenant, which was representative of him himself and his personal glory. And so uh, that certainly brought the attention, caught the attention of the Israelites when that happened. They realized, wow, the Holy of Holy, or the, the Ark of the Covenant is not to be messed around with because God is not to be messed around with. God represents himself in the Ark of the Covenant. Mm. Now, if we look at what the um, uh, what this meant was that the, the, the uh, God represented His presence in this cloud. Now, a cloud is somewhat ethereal, somewhat somewhat intangible in and of itself. You know, if you can, you're out in the wilderness and there's a cloud of fog that comes blowing by, it might it might be significant enough that it obscures your vision where you can't see, but you can make your arms go through it. There's nothing tangible there that stops your arms from waving in the midst of a deep fog. And that's something of the presence of God here in the temple as he established his visible presence that he was, that he had taken up uh, abode in this place. He told Israel to build uh, the ta the, to build, construct a tabernacle where the, the Holy Spirit descended upon the Ark of the Covenant there. And now as David and Solomon build this temple, uh, the same kind of thing happens and God descends again and manifests his presence there in the temple. So the, the, the glory of the first temple was not in all of the carvings, all of the processions, the real power of the temple was in the presence of God in the temple. 
And we need to remember that. We'll apply it here after the service. But we need to remember that the glory of our worship is not our processionals. It's not our architecture. It's not our artistry or what anything else that we might bring to a local church. The glory of a town, the glory of a worship place is the spirit of the Lord. Is the spirit of the Lord there? The awful thing about that today is that we make much ado about the ornamentation, much ado about architecture, much ado about the size of our buildings. But where, where in America today, where in the world is the power of God in the midst of the church? You see, there we find ourselves weak and wanting because we follow not the scriptures and we give not our hearts and our hopes over to the Lord in a spiritual way. So the first point of this message is to point out the significance of this eighth chapter of 1 Kings for the whole of Old Testament theology. Now, the, um, the second point I was going to make, or that I have here in your bulletin, is that the ark's entrance keyed the Spirit's entrance. In other words, they, they say more, far more in this chapter about the, about the Ark of the Covenant coming into the, being brought into the temple than they do about the Spirit. We just have two verses at the end about the Holy Spirit. The rest of it, the rest of these eight verses have to, has to do with the bringing of the Ark into the covenant, into the uh, temple. And uh, what we see from this is that um, the, uh, the Holy Spirit is an animating power to our faith, but the Ark of the Covenant represented the gospel. It represented the theology of our faith. And so in this sense, the theology of our faith is brought into the Holy of Holies, and then God puts his own personal imprimatur, his own signature uh, upon uh, this thing that is brought into the temple, this gospel symbol, as we would call it, he puts his signature on this to show the eff- his efficacy, his power. And his power has to do with the, the thing that is uh, brought in. Now, in the next portion of this eighth chapter, we read that uh, uh, Solomon gives a speech. And in verse 17, he says, Now it was in the heart of my father David to build a temple in the name of the Lord God of Israel. But the Lord said to my father David, whereas it was in your heart to build a temple in my name, you did well that it was in your heart. Nevertheless, you shall not build the temple, but your son who will come from your body, he shall build the temple for my name. And and Solomon said, therefore, so the Lord has fulfilled his word, which he which he spoke, and I have filled the position of my father David and sit on the throne of Israel as the Lord promised, and I have built a temple for the name of the Lord God of Israel. Now this is significant when we think of Trinitarian theology because the way God worked this out, he worked it out that the son of David, would be able to construct the temple. And in the same way, prophetically, we see that the Son of God, even our Lord Jesus Christ, is the one who materially constructed the, the, the temple that we might call the Church of the Lord Jesus Christ. God the Father had ordained this from time immemorial 
before the world was created. God had commanded it. God had ordained it. He created the world and mankind fell into sin, but he had also ordained another thing, that his son would bring about, would effect a way of salvation. And so it was not until that the Old Testament people made sacrifices every day that looked forward to this, uh, they went through the procedures. They, they believed in God's help, in God's forgiveness of sins, in God's establishment of righteousness. They believed in these things. But until the Lord Jesus Christ came upon the earth, until he literally did his good works day after day after day from the time that he was a baby, until the time he laid down his life on the cross, he continually did the good things that God demanded until all of those things together were coronated with a term, righteousness. And then Jesus offered that righteousness to us and said, this could be yours. If anyone thinks that they can pass through the tests of time at the end of time, and they could pass through God's judgment, standing upon their own righteousness, they're fools. It's a fool's errand that they're upon in this life because your righteousness and my righteousness can never satisfy the standards that God has given of total perfection. But that's what his son did. And so as Jesus offers that up to us, he offers to take all of the sins of our life upon himself and let them be slaughtered as they should be righteously in the cross, the death penalty. And then at the same time, he offers to give us his righteousness as a substitute so that we might qualify for heaven, so that we might qualify for eternal life, so that when we come before the living God and he says, why should I let you into my heaven? We can say, because of the righteousness of Jesus Christ. I merit heaven, not on my own, but on the merits of thy only begotten son. And so... <clears throat> This was what was symbolized in the Ark of the Covenant. The Ark of the Covenant, the, the, there was, it was a box. It was a holy box. Inside the Ark was the law of God, where God gave all of the demands of this righteousness, all of the necessities for going to heaven. And at the same time, he gave this to the people with a covenant that he would, that he would manage their salvation despite the law, he would manage their salvation, which is exactly what we see in the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. He, he dealt with the law himself personally. And so this was, uh, this was celebrated by Israel by having this ark go with them wherever they went. And the, the seraphim had the, the angelic seraphim had their wings opened above the ark, which symbolizes which symbolize the, the happiness of God, the, the approbation, the pleasure of God, that this was being done and that this was a, a symbol that it was in the midst of his people Israel. Wherever the, wherever the ark went, there was a people that was forgiven and justified by Jehovah God. And so this was the occasion where this ark was brought into the temple. It's like, it's like they got a lesson on the atonement of Christ and then the Holy Spirit came in and animated that in a mighty and powerful way so that everybody realized this is true stuff. If you thought, if you think that you can draw close to the living God, there are a number of passages in Scripture, like Isaiah chapter 6, 
where a great man or a great prophet drew close to God as he manifested his holiness. Even in the life of our Lord Jesus Christ, there were occasions where he manifested his deity. And people around him, the disciples, they stood back. They were afraid because they could see that there was a God. And they felt his presence. And in the midst of that presence, they felt, they felt like they were a nation of unclean people with unclean lips that they could not stand before the presence of God unless they had the Ark of the Covenant. And Jesus Christ is the ultimate Ark, just as Noah had an Ark and people could, could find their salvation in that Ark from the flood. So Jesus Christ is an Ark. And by, by climbing upon his back and obtaining his work, we can find salvation. We do not come unto judgment. We don't have to be afraid of the tremendous, terrible power of the living God because our Lord has made a covenant of salvation for us that started with the Old Testament people and has continued on and manifested in the life of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so um, this, is a, a, this is a chapter which can so easily be passed over in your Bible reading. You don't, you don't take it seriously. You don't, you don't realize what is being said here. But the people who fled from the inner part of the temple because the awesome presence of God, they understood God is real. Everything that God has said is true and that we can uh, abide in him without being destroyed if we obtain uh, his grace that was symbolized in the ark and which was then um, warranted by the presence of the Holy Spirit there in the Old Testament. So it's a great, a great, uh, a great and powerful passage of Scripture for us to learn theological lessons that are sometimes confused in this world, and also that we can uh, learn something about uh, how we apply these things to our lives. And so let's let's apply this this stuff to our life. And I've got four different things here. First of all. God's spirit is basic to the, for the Christian life. God's spirit is basic uh, to the Christian life. Our Lord Jesus Christ says, except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of heaven. In other words, and he, he talks there about John, John chapter 3, he talks there about the presence, the activity of the Holy Spirit. Do you have some sense of the Holy Spirit in your life today? You need to have it. It is mystical. It is not quantifiable. You, you cannot measure it. You cannot wake up in the morning and use some kind of a ruler or judge the amount of the Holy Spirit that you have in you by some kind of gauge, like a, a rain gauge or something like that. Just this, uh, just recently, I dealt with a, a, a patient at the hospital that was having a psychiatric breakdown. And uh, he, uh, uh, he was overwhelmed with a, a sense of sin in his life. And uh, yet when he, when, he, when he tried to go to Christ, he felt like there was something demonic that was working upon him that he could not, that he could not grasp that which he yearned for in his life. And so uh, we talked about it and I, I, I pointed to some of these same things in that, but that the Holy Spirit is real. He needs the Holy Spirit, but before, before he, he cannot count on any feelings like this, 
to to be the warrant of his faith uh, unless he unless he first has the gospel. And it's the, the gospel which is the strength of our mind and our heart. But then the Holy Spirit is added to that and uh, and makes us convicted about it. And so I just I said to him, you know, I I, I said one of the problems in your life is you want heaven to be here on earth immediately and perfectly. And if you have heaven now, unless you have heaven now, you're not going to believe in the gospel. I said, that's, that's backwards. Believe in the gospel now and you'll have heaven later. But you'll have tastes of heaven now in this life as the Holy Spirit moves uh, in your life. And we talked a great deal. and um, um, It was really a rewarding experience because they, it was, uh, they, they, they called me uh, to come in because the, the, the nurses in the ER had trouble. They were really having trouble with this patient. And after he, after we talked about it, and he, and I was able to encourage him in his faith, at the same time I was able to urge him on to better things. And the, the big thing I urged him on to was to pray, begin praying in his life that the, that the Holy Spirit would become more and more manifest in his life, that the Holy Spirit would help him to become more holy, that the Holy Spirit would give him a greater confirmation for the faith that he he had, and he had rudimentary faith. That was the the sorry thing about this. And uh, you know, it, I mean, it's very rewarding because modern medicine just doesn't recognize these things, and so they don't know how to deal with someone who's having some real spiritual uh, stirrings in their heart, and yet they're troubled by their some of the psychiatric problems that we can have as human beings. And um, so it was tremendously rewarding. And I love seeing the peace on, on that fellow's face uh, as I left. And, and, uh, and I, I, I also enjoyed some of the nurses and the doctors who, who thanked me for, for bringing order, uh, order in the ER <laughs> through helping this poor fellow who was uh, causing a bit of a stir there before, uh, before I talked to him. And so uh, we see the same kind of thing here in Chapter 8. And uh, uh, we should realize here that we cannot simply be Christians who entertain our minds with certain doctrines. Or we can't be Christians who come and uh, operate or tra- uh, tra- uh, pro- um, proceed through certain ceremonies in the church. All of those things are outside of us. But we need the Holy Spirit in our lives. The Holy Spirit is the third person of the Trinity. If we can know things about the Father, if we can rejoice in the things of Christ, then we ought also to yearn for the things of the Holy Spirit. When I, was, when I made my initial spiritual search because I knew that I was not a Christian and I didn't have the joy that I saw in other Christians' lives, one of the things I'll always be thankful for is that these early Christians who testified to me and witnessed to me, they didn't say to me, well, just say this prayer or just believe this in a sense of non-meaning. They said, uh, they said these are the things that are important, pointing to the gospel, but they said, uh, con- the confirmation of this comes by the Holy Spirit. I said, well, how do you get the Holy Spirit? They said, the Holy Spirit blows where it wills. It's sovereign. And uh, so they said, God doesn't owe you the Holy Spirit. But if you seek him, if you seek, if you seek the Spirit, then God often exposes himself and opens himself to the mind and the heart of the human being. So that's what I did. About five months later, in a worship service, suddenly the Holy Spirit dropped upon me like he did in the temple. And then I, I, all my problems with faith disappeared. 
because I, I had a, that he witnessed in my heart, I am God. I love you. This is what I've done for you. And I no longer had any problem believing the things uh, about Christ. So this is open to all of us. Uh, we, we need to pray in our lives, God, help me to be more and more confirmed in my faith. There's no secret way. There's no one way that every person operates or goes through this operation. God operates upon each one of us individually and brings us to a, a sense of the clarity, of the clarity of faith and the dearness of faith that he wants for us. God is always sovereign in these things. He is not at our beck and call. And yet he encourages us to pray to him. He encourages us to knock on the door, to open the door. And he says, I will come in if you do this. With me, I learned, I learned very obviously that God is a, a very true and very genuine and that, that, uh, uh, that I could be, I could know something about him uh, spiritually through this third person of the Trinity. Um, number two, awareness of the, son, of the Spirit follows grasping the Son. That's why we preach the gospel. That's why we, that's why we take Bible studies to people. Because the, the Spirit always follows the knowledge. Uh, and he, he, uh, he opens up the knowledge to us and makes us understand it better, but he also confirms it, even as he confirmed his presence in the temple, and he warranted the whole of the Old Testament. You know, the people of God, they went through these sacrifices, they did all of these activities, but on, on a day like this, God confirmed this stuff is not just mumbo-jumbo. This stuff is not just liturgy. This stuff is not just ceremony. This is real stuff. Because I am real. And when I draw close, I will overwhelm you with my presence. Um, number three, uh, holiness is not primarily visible, but spiritual. As human beings, we are just wed to the idea of tangibility. But God operates in the world of the spirit. Before there was anything tangible, there was no world. There was no tangible world to be seen or touched or felt. But God existed. And then Genesis 1 says that God breathed uh, his, his, his uh, word of creation, which he, in John 1, it says is the, was the Lord Jesus Christ. He, he breathed that and breathed it out, spoke it into existence. And then the then tangibility came about. Why do we as people, when we see this in the Bible, why do we then lost after tangibility? And why do we not put greater faith in intangibility where, where it's true? It's not just mumbo jumbo. It's true things that the Bible says, but it's a witness of God, the spirit, and it's a, a witness of truth. And so our holiness is, uh, is something that starts in our hearts by the presence of the Holy Spirit. And, uh, and when we are reborn, John 3, then new things become real for us. All, 2 Corinthians says, all things, have become, all things are old, the old life, but all things now have become new with us because of the Holy Spirit. Lastly, um, all things spiritual are purely at God's discretion. Even as I would urge you in your own lives to seek the Lord, to seek new things, to seek his, his new understandings of the word of God, I would just caution you that you're not in charge. 
that everything that God tells you and everything that God shows you is a tremendous mercy. At the end of Job, one of my favorite passages of the Bible, Job was one of the most mature men in Israel at the time before all of the book of Job happened to him. Yet at the end of the book, he says in chapter 42, I have heard of thee by the hearing of the ear, but now I see thee face to face and I repent in dust and ashes. The Christian life is always open to new discoveries. Don't think that you've reached the goal and that then you're going to coast for the rest of your life. Make each year a new time of discovery for you and your faith. Go deeper with the Lord. Uh, uh, ratify the things that God has said in a deeper way in terms of his spiritual testimony to your heart and grow in the grace of God. Um, I was touched by a description of the life of Frank, uh, Francis Schaeffer um, that uh, I bought this, bought this book recently. It's called Evangelical Heroes. There's two volumes published by Joel Beakey. And uh, he, he deals with historic heroes of the faith, but then he deals with a couple of modern ones. The two modern ones, well, the two of the modern ones that he deals with are Francis Schaeffer and then R.C. Sproul. And I found both, both chapters on these men um, really great. Um, one, of the, one of the people that had been to Labrie in Switzerland where Schaefer had set up shop and had his ministry um, uh, described his most memorable recollection of Dr. Schaefer. He said, the most profound impact of Francis Schaeffer was seeing how seriously he took his faith. Everything rode on it, giving a sense that every ounce of his life was dependent on the truth of his faith. For him, this meant that the truth of Christianity was real and could be experienced. He really believed in the supernatural reality of faith, and that belief stemmed from taking Scripture at its word, taking it seriously, rather than simply giving mental assent to it. His doctrinal studies had a line something like, I believe every doctrine can be lived. And the Holy Spirit is the one who enables us to live out that faith in our lives. So it's a great, a great sadness in Schaefer's life that his son Frankie uh, totally gave up on the faith. He went from he went from Eastern Orthodoxy, he went from Presbyterian Christianity to Eastern Orthodoxy. And then he left orthodoxy to become what he called an atheist who believes in God, which is, of course, mumbo-jumbo of the first magnitude. Um, but uh, his father, uh, and oh, by the way, for Frankie made millions of dollars off his father's name. Uh, he was a very talented son, made movies, that kind of thing. Became a millionaire. His father was never a millionaire. Uh, his father... His father um, was a great minister, a great missionary, but he never made that kind of, uh, of money because he was more concerned with the Lord, with the greatness of God, with his significance and his truth. Let us so be in our day. Our Father and our God, we pray that we might be spiritual creatures, that we might take this lesson from 1 Kings 8 to heart in our own lives, and that we might... Um, that we might be significant as thou, as thou art significant before our eyes. Bless us, O Lord, by thy Holy Spirit. Make the church today 
a vital church and not just a church of outward circumstance. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.